it's getting, uh, we either have to find a bigger place for, or I have to go back and do more challenging talks. <laughs> One thing I've always hated was to be popular. <laughs> I just don't like it. Okay. Well, welcome everyone. <laughs> So we're, uh, <laughs> our board president said before the talk began tonight, he says, are we going to have a, another scratchy record with the same thing, you know, where this thing plays over and over again? Yes, yes we are. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I, I change, you know, I alter the theme a little bit, but basically it's to firm us up in the direction and posture that we need to go. This will be the last talk in that preparation, but after this we're going to be diving into the very nature of what mindfulness and awareness is, because these are foundations for mindfulness. Unless we know what mindfulness is and awareness and how it develops within us, we really don't know what we're talking about when we're developing foundations for it. So the next couple of talks will be around that, and then we'll go into the series itself. Um, but uh, tonight I want to talk about the applications of effort uh, within this series and what effort looks like. <coughs> and I uh, would like to start out with something that I'm very interested in. Uh, I'm doing a, uh, I'm taking a series of, uh, of lectures from a cosmologist uh, through my DVD player, uh, 36, le uh, 36 lectures by this man named Mark Whittle, who is a, a, at the University of Virginia. Great learning courses, or whatever they're called. So someone gave me those series as a, as a present, which I just love. So I'm on number 12, and so you're going to be getting a lot of cosmology in here. <laughs> but one of the, uh, but because, Cosmology and mysticism seem to me to go hand in hand. It's just beautifully uh, how, how beautiful they uh, work hand in glove with one another. And on lecture three, uh, he was talking about the sum total of all the mass in the universe. So just stay with me here for a second. So if you s totaled all the mass and energy of the universe, and you can do that through the Einstein equation e equals mc squared to get energy converted into mass. You come up with 5.8 hydrogen masses per cubic meter for the mass equivalent of the whole universe. And he said, uh, you know, it's remarkable that we can even do that, but it seems to be pretty accurate. However, he says, that's not the total tum, sum of the mass of the universe because you also have to weigh in the gravitational effect, which is a minus number on that. And when you sum total all of the negative impact that the gravitational energy has upon that mass energy, the sum total of the universe is zero. He says that's one of the most astounding facts in science is that everything you see sums to nothing.
And uh, I, uh, my eyes uh, lit up, and, um, <laughs> and because it uh, fits so thoroughly into what we're doing. As he, as he started to elaborate a little more on that zero, he said it's, uh, the universe started from nothing. From nothing. And therefore nothing has to be an inherent characteristic of everything. It's a Dharma talk, really. <laughs> so, uh, but it gets us, it gets us uh, coordinated with uh, the most depth and uh, subtle science of the day. And it also shows us if we need reassurance or confidence that in the Buddha's way, because essentially that's a, that was his basis of his teaching was that the things we see aren't what we think they are, that they sum total to zero, and that each part and component within all of what we see sum totals to zero. And that the sense of I, we need to start with the, uh, our own sense of zeroness, our own sense of, of emptiness, if for lack of another word, so that we can see in perspective to the true nature of reality. And we have to work in alignment with that truth all along the way in order to see it. Because if we take ourselves to be a one, or a one plus, depending upon how big our ego is, then we will continue to see in terms of that fraction or whole number. You can't not, when you've made that assumption that you and I are one, I don't mean oneness, I mean that we are separate from one another, then that basic assumption then sets the standard for perception. It sets the paradigm for the perception. And that the perception will be perceived from the things of the universe, but they won't total zero when you're assuming the one of your position. Okay, so we have to, we have to literally shift paradigms. And the more I think about the nature of what we have to do, the more radical it becomes as to what we have to do. And so that's the reason we are, have such a preparation series for this Satipatthana Sutta, because these are the tools of, of of um, deciphering that oneness from the thingness that we already know. Uh, and yet, I think that the, much of the teaching that was the direction and view for that, for those applications, uh, were lost somewhere in the annals of the 2,500 years. And so people can pick up those tools and do whatever they want with it, because they're just tools. And so the orientation that we have, in particular for our effort, is so important as to how we will use these tools. Because effort, really, if we look at it, it follows our beliefs, doesn't it? If you believe, if, if uh, the tendency is to put efforts where our beliefs are, we start by believing ourselves and the effort will come from that sense of self. It will come and follow through with that sense of self. But since this is about switching paradigms, then we need a more cautious approach when we start using those tools. 
we can very easily get sidetracked in, in uh, self-proclamation and self-acclaim and say that we are governing our own growth. And for years I felt that, that. I felt that until it made me really question what I had been doing because everything I had been doing was from my own effort. There was no faith in that. The, the belief system was that I could do it. And from that belief system, everything was organized around that fact. Now, uh, so that's, that's one of the uh, subtle uh, qualities that we have to begin to realize is how far, how much of our practice is driven by the sense of me. And when it's driven by that fact, and that fact is never questioned, then that fact is going to set up a paradigm of its own. It's going to have its own logic. It's going to have its own purpose. It's going to have its own intention. It's going to have its own course of unfolding. And if I could just share with you, uh, I, 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 um, when I went to Burma uh, years and years ago, 1979, and became a monk there, I was uh, given a system of, of spiritual development in which the sense of me was very much in control. This is how I interpret it. it other people may have interpreted it differently and come to a different result. But, and so uh, there was an a, a, um, enthusiasm for uh, willpower and effort. In fact, after every interview, the uh, teacher there, who I would see daily, would tell me to try harder. And believe me, I was trying harder. And I, I really felt that uh, if, there was, if this was going to be a product of something I could do, then I wasn't going to fail. And so uh, from that, to, and there was a whole progression of insight, it's called, actually it's called progression of insight, which as one fine tunes the uh, ability to attend and steady one's mind, a whole set of experiences occur in terms of what you're seeing. And then after a number of very diligent days or months practicing this and moving in accordance with this progression, there often arises for the diligent practitioner a moment in which the subject and the object disappear. And there is not the sense of someone seeing, nor is there sense of something being seen. And then that can last however long it lasts. It usually is a, uh, just a moment. <clears throat> and then the sense of me comes very back into place, the place we know it to be. But what, I, what was interesting to me as I went through that progression and had that occurrence was what came back. You had an experience, or the, the absence of an experience, where this gap, this blankness. And the way they set it up was that you did this, uh, you just kept applying effort for a series, uh, and you kept having these moments of blankness, and each blankness would eradicate certain defilements in you until finally you were defilement-free. So that was the logic of this whole thing, which I bought. But what I noticed when this occurrence happened and what came back was the sense of, of the paradigm coming back. 
the sense of self was fully, firmly in place because I had to then direct my attention back to the practice with the same degree of focused attention I was, had been giving it, with the same amount of effort and tension I was giving it, and uh, that somehow I was going to eradicate myself through that diligence. And I questioned that. You see, does that fit? Is that logical? Is it, does, it, does it make sense? I mean, I, these uh, Sayadaws, Sayadaw is a teacher of great renown. These Sayadaws told me that. That's what they told me would happen. And here was I. Who was I? I was a Westerner. You know, they were steeped in Buddhism. Uh, and who was I to question that authority? And, but I had to because the tension of the effort was killing me, to be honest. And it hurt. And I was at the base assumption, as we were talking about the continuums, the ways we can practice last time, from one of the continuums that I was focused upon was from suffering to no suffering. Now, but the very process I was getting I was using to come to the resolution of the suffering was creating more suffering. And, and that, that paradox stopped me dead in my tracks. I said, this is, either I'm practicing wrong and I keep hearing what I'm supposed to be doing so I don't think I am practicing wrong, or this system is amok. Something's wrong here. Now that it was a muck for me, all right? Some of you may be able and willing to do this uh, in ways that do doesn't work against you, but I was unable to do that. And uh, to, but, but to, to have that level of honesty in oneself, coming from the sincerity of really wanting uh, the fruits of the practice to be genuine and authentic, uh, and then the courage to say, uh, you know, this just isn't working. I have to leave this. I have to leave this. Not from a sense of failure, but from a sense of that it isn't working. You know, I tried it. And I tried it diligently. I was there for, I've been practicing that method for a number of years and then five very intense months in Burma, sleeping four hours a night and all of the other austerities they force upon you. That was the end of it. And I never have regretted that, not at all. And it's until we make this practice entirely our own that it will work against us because we'll be working from the authority of what another person's uh, journey has been. And it's different for each one of us. But there needs to be a spiritual logic, not a spiritual progression. This thing needs to fit within the rationale of what we know to be true. And the Buddha made that point very clear in a sutta. Uh, at one point, he, he, I think I've said this before in this class, but he was walking with a group of monks and he came to a, another sect, of a, a Hindu sect called the Jains who were contemporaries of the Buddha. Mahavira was the head of that sect at, during that time. And those Jains, J-A-I-N-S, were were standing out and they're looking at the sun and they're just standing there motionless. And the Buddha 
came up with his disciples and he said, what are you doing? And uh, one of the Jains uh, broke his practice and said, answered the Buddha and said, uh, I'm wearing off my karma by not adding any more karma to myself. And the Buddha nods and he says, uh, how much have you worn off? And Jane says, I don't know. How would I know that? I don't know. Buddha says, uh, how much have you got left to go? And the Jane says, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And then the Buddha said, well, how will you know when you're finished? <laughs> and the Jane said, well, I just don't know. And the Buddha said, now look, monks, this is truly silly practice. And walks on. Okay? And, but you know, the persistence, the persistence that those, um, the, the Jains had in their stubbornness to an ideology when they had no rationale, no logic associated with that ideology whatsoever that gave them any hint of where they were going or what they were doing. And how many of our practices look like that? Look like Jane standing in the sun. You see? This thing, if you want this thing, it's got to line up for you. It's got to, it's got all, and, and it, I don't, if you're coming from other uh, traditions, fine. Uh, you're welcome anyway. But whatever tradition you're coming from, it has to line up for you. And then you have to use it as a sounding board, as a governance for how we're moving in relationship, from suffering to non-suffering. And so the very strategies that we employ, whatever continuum that we are resonating with us, and last week I spoke about uh, from noise to stillness, and from, from self to selflessness, or any number, they're all going to take you through the same deliberate process, but whatever you use, are you getting noisier? Are you suffering more? Are you becoming more unconscious? Are you or, or more conscious in that continuum? Are, is the means you're using the last end of the continuum so that you're using the continuum's end as the means by which you are moving forward? You can't use noise to come to stillness. You can't use an unconscious response to come to consciousness. You can't use the sense of self to come to selflessness. And therein lies the rub. Because most of our practice is, are governed by this thing. In fact, we are, we are so honed in upon that factor. Because we don't want to lose the paradigm that it's offering us. The paradigm is the fabric of our life. It's the foundation on which we assume reality and the assumptions we make upon reality. And to tamper with that is to tamper with something that many of us feel to be the very heart of our lives. But that's what this practice does. Now, it, I'm, not I'm not meaning to scare you or to frighten you from the thing, but when you begin to see how the self organizes its lineage, its own lineage in relationship to what it does, you begin to hear the sounds of self in everything we do in our practice, like goal setting, 
like striving. Like thinking future, but never present. How's this thing going? What am I doing? Where, you know, the, this uh, constant sense of self-evaluation and comparison. And you get very sensitive to those areas and you see that they are in fact areas of pain. And then when you connect that those, those strategies are really causing us more pain and you're interested in ending your suffering, then you're willing to give them up. You're not going to give them up just to switch paradigms. Why would you switch a paradigm that's feeding you? But when you see it's not feeding you, when you see it's absolute limitation in front of your eyes, when it doesn't help you any longer because you see the stress growing in you, as I was in Burma, then that's it. That's it. But you'll nev we will never see it unless we are unless we have a sense of the direction this thing is going to take, unless we have a continuum set for ourselves in which we are moving from one end to the other, and we have some way that we are assessing or looking at ourselves in relationship to that continuum. Am I suffering less than I was when I first started? Am I quieter than I was? Am I more conscious than I used to be? Is there less of me around? That means am I less interested in egoic you know, if arrogance. Am I, am I less arrogant? Do I know with such assurance everything to be so true and my opinions are, you know, all of that. Is that, is that sorting itself out in the direction of your practice? Then, if you're able to say a resounding yes, then you're probably moving in a very clear and logical way towards a resolution of this thing. But if we're just practicing Buddhism, <laughs> whatever that means, and being a Buddhist, which would be awful. I don't want any of you to be Buddhist, you see. What, what, why are you adding something to this thing when we're here to take things away? Right? And you, and you look for the key signs. You look for that, the key signs of a warming heart. You look for the organ change, which says that the left hand of the continuum is moving to the right hand, because it all can be reinterpreted back into the mind and the heart. I'm moving from the mind into the heart. And you, and you look for key components of the hearts, of that transition to that paradigm. Kindness. Kindness. Attention. Caring. Being a little more settled. Loving, loving not just yourself and your life, but the present. The present is so full. It's so full. And the mind makes it so depleted. It's just such abundance. And the mind tells us just the opposite. See, 
We would like to think that personal effort only lasts as long as the person. But in fact, the person lasts as long as the personal effort. (laughs) The effort manifests the person. And so if we get this backwards, we're going to carry ourselves along with ourselves for a long period of time. I'm sure there are still people in their cells in Burma with themselves very much intact as they progress along. At what point does that thing dissipate, for God's sake? When it's an idea, not a thing, because it sums to zero. It has to be an idea. If it's say, if it was anything else, then it wouldn't sum to zero. Only an idea is zero. Only an image. And how can a practice that has that as its base ever let go of the very idea of what the, of the practice that is self-promoting it? So this is a question of humility for us. So I want to go in tonight a little bit into the mechanics, the science, and the art of practice. And uh, I want to do this because uh, when we start moving into the Satipatthana Sutta, there are mechanical practices there, and there are also artistic practices there. And we have to understand why we would want the mechanics when the mechanics are the antithesis of what I've just been speaking about. So let me, let, we need to talk about that a little bit. Because most of us, uh, we have minds that are so discursive and, and have been infused with abstract thought for such a long time that in the consciousness of the human mind, in the collective consciousness of, their all, of, a, of us all, there's a programmed way that the child, in our ch- the infant within us, but also the infant of, of, of children, progress right into abstract thinking. And, uh, and so when you had that kind of background and you have a culture that, uh, worldwide culture that invests in that, then, when you come to meditation, and all you see is discursive thought, you need some way to settle down. And there is a mechanical quality to meditation in order to get to that stability point. As I've mentioned many, many times, you can graph it. It's science. You spend, the more time you spend on thoughts, the more, the more time you spend on your breath, the more breaths you'll see. You'll be present Right? You can't necessarily say it's better every single time. In fact, you can't say that. But over time, the graph is definitely in a positive direction. And your mind settles down. And that gives us a real sense of accomplishment. And people love that practice and are very reluctant to give that practice up because it fits their paradigm. Right? Because it's, see, I can see it. I can show you if I... I can show you my graph anyway. And I can show you my attention and I can, you know, I can even show off. 
in that way if I want to by obtaining some of the powers that are associated with that kind of thing. And it's a, it, it's, and it's totally mechanical. It's predictable. It is, it is absolutely predictable. And that feeds the sense of self because that's within its paradigm. It's like, you know, you do something over time, you lift weights over time, you get big muscles. It's predictable. You eat too much, you get heavy. You know, it's all, all these things. So that sense of graphing our spiritual progress, we love. And so many of us stay longer than we need to upon that particular trajectory because it serves the sense of self's paradigm. Now, yes, it needs to be done, right? So when we go into these things, if, you, if you're weak on that particular skill, we, you need to polish it up. But let us beware, right? Let's have a flashing light over the breath because it seduces us in the way that the, this paradigm does. It seduces us with the temptations of pleasure that the breath provides. It provides cultivated states of mind that allure you, that are very subtle, very, very tempting, and you think, oh God, maybe this is what I really wanted. You know, like just peace. Never mind that it's conditional peace because everything on this paradigm line is conditional. That's what gets us off of it. It doesn't last. It's temporary. You come out of your sitting and you're back in argument, right? Your peace is shot. And your, and your breath is shot as well. But it's a very strong lure, luring factor. And many, 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 most people at some point get pulled into that and just t take it on. You know, you can take it on into the the abodes of the Brahman, where you're in the cosmology of Buddhism, there are people who are so absorbed in, the, in those subtle sensations that they spend eons in these Brahman realms. But anyway, I don't, that, those I have no idea about, but I can say that they may be metaphorical for, our, for our, the allurement they offer us. So where's the art? I mean, why would I even want the art? And so if you're thinking about this practice as being a breath practice, let's wake up now. Okay, the bell's ringing. You know, the stove timer, it's off. They're going on. So it's time to put that aside. Now comes the art. Now the art of practice is, doesn't have any goals. It's, the goal is discovery. I think it's a little bit like Lewis and Clark, you know. Like there's land out there. I don't know how much land. Go explore it. They nod their head and off they go, you know. They have no maps. They have no goals. There's no prediction, no guarantees. In fact, they're trying to find a waterway, northwest channel to the Pacific Ocean that doesn't exist. And so they, they're, they're just on an exploration. Now that's the art. That's the art. It's 
So get a feeling for now you're in the true Dharma seat. Yes, it was important to get the breaths down and get the, the attention stabilized. Because how can you see anything if your mind is just chattering all the time? To be able to discern the difference between the chatter and the direct experience is essential for us. And that quality doesn't uh, go away. We keep focusing in from time to time on that differential, the difference between the thought and the, and the experience, until we are tuned enough into it, steady enough in presence, in presence, because it's only thought that can take us away. So every time we have left a thought, we are in presence, right? But now there's more to do. And the whole Satipatthana Sutta is really meant, from my opinion, outside of the initial breath meditation exercises, is, are really meant for the exploration, for the Lewis and Clark adventure. And it starts welcoming us in to an exploration of what this thing is. We have taken it to be something. We've taken it to be one. Let's just say plus because I, you'll get confused about oneness when I keep saying one. So just, you've taken it to be something, right? We all have. Now we have, to, we have to see if what we have taken it to be is true. And we have to explore it. We have to explore the body, which we're so uh, um, reliant upon. Some of us have left it and never come back to us. Other people refuse to, you know, everything that happens to the body is happening to them. So there's a grasping. So we have to look at all that, the pain that we have created around the body. We have to explore it. We have to understand it. It has to come back to zero. It has to be rebalanced with the nature of the universe. But we can make it into a new provision of the self. We can do a checklist. And it can feed the sense of me. Just as anything can, because it's, it's these are just tools. They can be used skillfully or they can be used unskillfully. And this sense of art then also turns its attention to the mind and looks at what the mind is, not just steadying oneself, but looks at the nature of the mind, looks at the nature of where it has given its identification. It looks at the five aggregates, which are part of this. It, it looks at emotions, it looks at thought itself, it looks at feeling tones, the Vedna, the pleasant and unpleasant. It looks at all of this to see if there's anything that it can come to and define as something. And it turns out that it comes to nothing. It sum totals as zero. Body sum totals as zero, and the mind sum totals as zero. And yet still, the sense of self can claim reference to that zero. Oh, I, my empty, yeah, I'm very empty. <laughs> All, everyone's empty. You're empty too. You know, we can argue it. I'm not empty. You are empty. <laughs> you can make it into a, right? So this thing is very slippery slope. It's a very slippery slope. So anything, even this, the experience of the deepest aspects of of the tr teaching can be made into something. 
because making into something only requires your opinion. <laughs> that's, what the, that's what it takes to make zero into something. And my God, do we have a lot of opinions. So what we then do, what we then move into, and which I think is what I call the fourth foundation. See, I'm already getting into this a little bit. But if you let me steer you a little bit into this, away from some of the commentary around what some of these foundations are, because I think they have just, in most many cases, really trashed the definition of them, especially the fourth foundation. To me, it's an exploration. It's the encouragement of the exploration. It's the encouragement of abiding in exploration, not in opinion. So it's the, it's the willingness to start questioning the foundation on which the paradigm has rested. We've explored the body. We've steadied our attention. We've explored the mind. We haven't found anything in there, and yet there is this ongoing sense of someone who is doing it all that really hasn't been, uh, hasn't been adequately understood because I, we're still a reference place for what we have discovered. I have discovered. I have seen. I have experienced. And no matter where, how we divide this all up and check it all out, it's still everything, everywhere I look, everything I do, I can't find any sense of self, but somehow the sense of self stays firmly entrenched in our ideas. So this final foundation is the toppling over of that. It's the state of wonder. You see, the spiritual finality is living in the state of wonder, unfixed. Because anytime we fix something forms, and we form with that thing that has formed. A conclusion, no self in there, the self has formed. Now how are we going to stay unformed as long as we're fixing? As long as we're opinionating? As long as we're... Because the paradigm of the sense of self is the assurance it needs from the known object so it can have a known reference to that known object. And that requires the abstract thought occur. But without abstract thought, there's just wonder. And then all the paradigm folds itself into, shapes itself into the wonder, the new paradigm. And so that last tentacle of carryover, that last referencing 
after having done all of this exploration, after Lewis and Clark comes back, come back, they've seen the whole thing, now they're the explorers. They have all the notoriety of that, having explored. And we too can have all the sophistication and the arrogance of having seen everything. And yet there's no wonder. And so we haven't switched paradigms. Yes, we've had a lot of very valuable experience. We've seen that we're much more than what we've taken ourselves to be. We're no longer limited in terms of the scope of our ideas about ourselves, but we're still caught within an idea. And this series of foundations is to destroy ideas forever. Because no idea is a true one. They're all relatively true. They're all conditionally true. And you can use ideas even in the space of wonder because nothing really means what you're saying it to me. Not that you're lying, it's just that you see in exactly the moment you're pointing something out as an opinion, you're seeing 10,000 other possibilities. And so where we rest, where we rest at the end game is important to understand. Where do we think, what do we think silence, stillness looks like? What do we think the end of suffering looks like? What do we think someone's, who's, what do we think a full conscious aliveness looks like? Does, do you think it looks like you or me? Only in appearance, not in substance. And then we know stillness. Then we know the end of suffering. And all of that was part of the dance of perception. The perceptual fixation of the abstract reasoning, of the abstract thought, of the abstract idea, and not the ground of the present. And we are then transformed into the ground of the present. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? See, as you sit there, you 
through the stillness. The stillness is coming not into your bones, but from your bones. Because it's the sum total of the universe is zero. That means it's all still. And there's a, a fine tuning into that stillness as we release the resistance that has kept us from it. And that resistance is another expression of having meant something, have having landed somewhere. And it's also another expression of the pain of our life. For wherever we land, wherever there's resistance, there's pain, by definition. But in stillness, we can't be found. Are there any questions or comments about anything? Okay, so this is the gauge, all right? So, I mean, it's fine for you to ask that question, but I want you to gauge it in your own dynamic, okay? So that's that's important. And the question had to do with uh, this constant watching, focusing on oneself, and asking another teacher who suggested that what you see in yourself, you see in others, and that takes you out of yourself a little bit so that you can see the common denominator of how cells are formed, right? Sort of and uh, but here but and you said that's a release 
from a certain kind of focused um, First of all, I wouldn't be afraid of focusing on yourself. It's an interim. You're, if the lesser light is shined on what you want to explore, you're not going to see anything. You're not going to explore anything. So don't be afraid of the sense of watcher or the sense of mindfulness, which I will talk about now for the next uh, month or so. Uh, don't be cons- Don't um, think of that as. Uh, it's merely a light that shouldn't be traumatizing, you know, shouldn't be stressful. It's any more than this light on my hand. We're just revealing what is hidden in ourselves. So I wouldn't shy away from that sense of self-watching because how are you supposed to know yourself unless you bring that attention to bear upon yourself? But it can get overbearing at some point. And that's what metta is meant to do is we can get so self-consumed within that focus that we lose the sense of connectedness that's always around us interpersonally and in other things, but not just interpersonally. Not just the universe sums to zero, not just other people, okay? So, uh, uh, and so uh, to, to begin to allow some dissipation of that focus so that you can begin to see other people and include them in on your spirit, sphere of, of awareness uh, can feel like uh, it brings you closer to people, makes you more attentive, makes you more sensitive of them. And so it, the, the sense of self-awareness at some point has to start moving out to include other things as well as oneself uh, because uh, this, we're in community, sangha, etc., etc. Those that is another interim step. Okay, it's an interim step, uh, an important one. But we were go- we're going to be leading this through all the interim steps. I just don't want to start talking about them now. Where we start, how this thing progresses from mindfulness to awareness, all the different ways that we start looking and then uh, assuming that different focus from self-focus to other focus and all of that. And each of them have and give us a certain sense of exploration wonder when we move out again and also an alleviation of a burden. So the dynamic that's occurring is that you're understanding yourself, you're less uh, unconscious to much of you when you sit on your line. When you see those traits in others, you're much less resistant to other people. If they, you start, you don't divide and separate out individuals from yourself in the same way that you do. Things start coming in together so there's a sense of growing interconnection. There's a sense of, there's not as much chatter going on inside of you about other people and what their opinions and what they're doing and all of that because you've come and adjusted their traits to your own traits so you can, and once you've accepted and love your own traits, you can then accept and love the traits that you see in yourself and other people and all of that. So that's making you less noisy, right? So you see the continuums. So all of this, you begin to say, oh yeah, I'm moving in a, I'm moving in a wise direction. I'm getting quieter, less, less opinionated, less suffering associated with others, more accommodating, whatever form of continuum you have developed, you can see that those, that's moving you in, that, in a wise direction. And that's your gauge. See? 
And you have that set up in your own heart so you know that gauge. No, I mean, it takes effort to do anything. It takes effort to move a hand, you know. So don't, assu don't assume, what we're talking about is the effort that creates the, from the uh, paradigm of me and how we create ourselves from that effort by striving towards more perfection or more improvement by uh, constantly um, judging others or, you know, all of that. See, I mean, you Life is, takes energy, doesn't it? And so it's going to take effort in everything we do. Uh, so I'm not suggesting that the, that the effort I'm pointing out here is the end of all doing. So we lay down in bed and never get up, right? It's not that. It has to do specifically with the sense, the sense of me being the focus of the universe and how everything I do continues to sharpen that focus even as I'm attempting to move outside of that particular spotlight, you see? So let's just take it as kind of, tonight I just painted the background white, and now we're gonna start painting, painting the practices on that background. Uh, so I wanna save questions like what you just asked, Linda, for a little further on down the, down the road. But there's a, there's a quote from um, the Sutta Napata I was meant to re read, but I don't have my, my glasses. Do I have any? Oh, oh thank you. <laughs> okay, so here's the, uh, here's the assistant. For you, those of you, Sutta Napata is a grouping of uh, some old sayings by the Buddha. He says, one insight is that effort is the basis of all suffering. The other insight is that by the complete cooling and cessation of effort, no more suffering is produced. Every form of suffering grows out of effort. Eradicate effort and no more suffering is to be found. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Uh, but he's not, he's not saying, don't, you know, don't move. He's saying, you know, that when we, how we're looking at the path, the very assumptions we're making about the path, that, that I'm here, that I need to do something uh, to get over myself or to have something added or subtracted from myself to improve myself so that I can then be spiritual. There are subtle ways that when we sit down or we do any spiritual practice, we make basic assumptions about what we're doing. We're, we wouldn't be practicing at all unless we had a basic assumption that we needed something, would we? At some point, even that basic assumption that we need some, 
something has to be questioned. What do we need? I'm not talking about food or rest. I'm talking about the sense of self-improvement, the sense of moving from point A to point B. Now, I'm already getting into the area I didn't want to go. So I'm just going to stop it from there and pull back and see if there are any other questions. Okay, good. Thank you all. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.